Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 93. Would you like a simple command to launch your Python programs using the newest version of the language installed on your machine? This week on the show, we continue our conversation with Brett Cannon. Brett discusses his project, the Python Launcher for Unix. We dive into Brett's workflow to set up projects, virtual environments, and prepare for distribution. He shares some of the tools he employs and reasons for keeping things simple. We also talk about PEP665, which specifies a file format to list an application's Python package installation requirements. Brett shares why he co-authored the PEP and a bit of the community's reaction. It leads to a deeper conversation about going beyond requirements.txt files to lock files. This episode is brought to you by Scout APM. Spend less time debugging and more time building with Scout APM. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. All right, well, maybe we should shift into one other area that you've talked about uh, recently, sure, which is the Python launcher. Mm -hmm. And I had a question about development of it and then kind of like your personal uses, how you navigate this. I, maybe I can give a little background of how <laughs> I approach this. Sure. I end up using lots of versions of Python uh -huh. as an instructor, uh, as a video creator, as a, somebody testing other people's code to, to make sure this you know, tutorial is going to work going through some some other kind of thing and going to talk about it on the show. And so I very inefficiently have installed, you know, three, <laughs> four maybe versions of Python on my yeah. computer. And I edit like the, the files to choose which one's getting pushed in. So that's the current version, which is pretty in, inefficient, like going in and, uh, you know, editing my bash or, or a ZHS file, you know. Um, and so... I know that's not a, an appropriate way to do it, but it's been working. And so then I, I've seen lots of other solutions like pipenv potentially or pyenv. Mm -hmm. I don't know, there's a whole bunch of them, right, that are out there. Oh, yes. Had to support all of them in VS Code somehow. So I, I, I'm unfortunately well aware of all the options we have in the community. Yeah, yeah. And you, yeah, you got to support them. Yeah, okay. So I didn't know, you know, I, when I looked at this a little bit more to do some research for the show, I don't use Windows a lot. I have in certain circumstances, but I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I was in an office using Python on Windows, but I never learned about the Python launcher, which is kind of old. I mean, it's almost 10 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, PEP 397, March 2011. And then the idea that you could just, instead of typing the word Python out, you can type just Py to, to launch you know, this latest version of Python on your machine. I, I'm kind of wondering, like, why did you want to create the this Python launcher for Unix? And I don't know if you're the only person involved in that, but 
in, in, is it because of like things you need to work through or I don't know. I got a bunch of questions there. Sorry. It's a mess. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe give me, give me your history there. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it is just me. Okay. And the way it came about was two, two things. There, there's the original inspiration, the thing that finally pushed me over to do it. Okay. So the inspiration was some, once again, I follow trainers and I know sometimes trainers for like, I don't know if they think I personally don't or just steering council in general. I know some people think we don't listen to trainers because we keep adding things to Python, which makes their lives harder. Right. But I do listen. We do care about the begin, uh, getting started experience and keeping things simple and all that. So I do listen. Um, and one of the things someone was lamenting was the fact that if beginners, when they install Python on Windows, don't pay attention and click that box that says, please add Python to path. Yeah. You can't type Python and have it show up. Now, Windows 10 changed that a bit because if you type Python, it'll open up the Windows Store and let you install Python from the Windows Store, which is great because, I mean, it makes it way quicker and easier to install, and now it will install the launcher and all that stuff. Um, but the thing was, is at the time, that wasn't really happening and because it took me a few years to get the launcher done. People were just going like, oh, it sucks. Every time I teach these courses, like, I have to tell the Mac people one thing, I tell the Windows people another thing. And it was just this this constant friction point for everyone where it's just like, yeah, why can't we have one set of instructions to tell people what to do? And so like one approach was Steve Dower, who is in charge of the um, Python build for, uh, sorry, the Windows build for Python and include, which also includes obviously how it gets installed. His solution was to talk to the Windows team and get that that shim for the Python command put into Windows so that it'll launch the Windows Store. Okay. My solution was to think about, well, why don't we have Pi as a command on Mac or or even Linux? I mean, the trainers were running into more on people bringing Mac laptops than anything. And like, huh, that's an idea. But then what really did it for me was I work at Microsoft, I have a Windows laptop, and I started to do work in Windows itself and just to see what it was like for Python users on Windows because I have historically been a Mac slash Unix person. Okay. And the the Pi command was handy. It's like, oh, this is convenient. Much like you, I typically have multiple versions of Python installed because right. reasons, just it's me. I just install all of them. It doesn't matter testing purposes for the extension for the Python extension for VS code. So all sorts of stuff. So I have multiple versions and the Pi command turned out to be handy. And so I just finally got to the point where it's like, yeah, you know what? I get people's complaints about having to teach people two different ways to do it, especially if they didn't install Python with you there for you to tell them, click that box or the pre windows 10 days before the command opened up the windows store and, Steve worked out some of the kinks on the earlier versions of the Python versions, um, like the 3.10 version, Soul Slice and Clean. Earlier ones didn't have the launcher and little weird esoteric details. Anyway, because, yeah, the launcher is like four years. I started the code like four years ago, I think. Okay. So I just finally went, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to fix this. And when I went and looked at the Windows Im- implementation, uh, it's all in C. And I just made it, I went, oh, I don't want to write C. I don't want to make this all work on Unix. This looks like a pain. And then I went, oh, wait. I've been wanting to learn Rust. 
And so I realized that this was like a perfect Rust project. Mm. The, the semantics aren't complicated. It's totally something you want to be self-contained and just something you just download and run, right? Which I know is a complaint people have about Python compared to compiled languages. Right? It's very easy just to compile a Rust program into a single binary and just, there you go. It seems to have just the right level of complexity to have to learn pretty much all facets of the language to some extent. And so I decided, yeah, all right, you know what? I'm going to implement the Python launcher for Unix in Rust. And yeah, let's see how it goes. And it took me three years, main for no real reason other than it's a side project that no one was really asking for, and it wasn't really going to have massive impact on the community necessarily. So it was just, and I was learning Rust while I did it. So I just had to have enough time to learn Rust while working on it to figure out how best to do things and all that. And I just chipped away at it bit by bit. And as I did it, I became, I, I was my own dog fooder. So I'd use it on my Mac as the way to run Python. And that's how I came up with the inspiration of like, oh yeah, you know what? I always create my virtual environments and they, I always name them .venv and I create them in the directory of the project I'm using them for, right? I, I'm just not a virtual env wrapper kind of person or whatever. I don't keep them all in some global directory. For me, that drives me nuts because I don't know which of these environments are for what. If they're for a specific project, why aren't they kept with the project? That's right? my problem there. Yeah, I understand some people hate that and they want to own the global directory because they like the idea of being able to just delete that whole directory and get rid of all their environments at once. Whatever. Chase their own. Never made sense to me. Real quick. Yeah. The dot makes it hidden. And does it provide other functionality in the sense that like it may like get might ignore it immediately or I don't know. Like uh, Git won't ignore it immediately, but VS Code will ignore it immediately. Okay, because it's hidden. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So for me, that was another motivator, right? Like when I do code searching, I don't want to search through my third-party installed packages. I'm not looking in their code, I'm looking in my code. Okay. And if I really care, I could always open the site packages in VS Code and search that way, or pull up a terminal and just use rip grep or whatever grepping tool I want to search in there if I really wanted to. So it just fit my workflow. And once again, I'm the only one making this. And one thing I have learned over the years is being opinion A, being opinionated is not bad, but B, by being opinionated, it makes it easier to say no. Right. So which keeps projects simpler to maintain because then I don't constantly feel guilty for not implementing someone's requirement if it doesn't meet my requirement. It's like, that's great. Feel free to fork, but that doesn't meet my needs, so I'm not going to do it. Sorry. Uh, which let me keep this project small and something I'm happy to maintain because as long as it keeps meeting my needs, that that works. That's it. it is basically I kept using it, kept finding these little ways to improve my workflow, and eventually it got to the point where with the automatic virtual environment, uh, usage on top of always just grabbing the newest version of Python, I don't really type the word Python anymore when I'm doing development on my machines. I always just type Py. And it's just PY. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Literally, if I open up a new project and I don't have a virtual environment, I just do py space dash m venv dot venv and then I just type Py from there on. Like I literally don't have to type Python anymore. I. I, I really don't. And it's just so convenient that it's just kept going. I've been extremely lucky. I have not had to do a single point release for it yet. The semantics have held up. Uh, no one's really filed any bug reports. All the problems have been around documentation, FAQ to help people like using PyEnv or Homebrew to help the launcher find their installs. 
but otherwise, yeah, it's really worked out. So that's cool. How does it how does it find the most recent installation? So the semantics are really simple. So it reads your path it reads your path environment variable. Okay. And then what it does, uh, so it reads that environment variable, gets the list of all the directories. It gets a list of all the files in those directories and looks for anything named Python something dot something. It then parses out those two numbers, the major and minor versions, and then it just does a sort. Okay. And whichever one has the bigger major and then bigger minor, that's considered the newest version, and that's the one it uses. Now, there are ways to override it. There are environment variables, like pi underscore python is an environment variable you can set to say what the max version is, or the version specifically to use if you don't specify a Python version, which is handy. Like, let's say you install Python 3.11 alpha, but you don't want to use that in your day-to-day, but that's still on your path. You could set pi under python equals 3.10, and that will make pi... Python 3.10 be the one that you use if you don't specify a specific version for the launcher to use. Okay. But otherwise, that's that's really it. It really just, it's not complicated. It's really just search path for all the Pythons, find the one that's got the biggest major, and then if there's a tie, the biggest minor version, and just run it. And it's Unix, so it uses an exec VE, which replaces the process that you launch the launcher with, with the actual other Unix process, and away you go. Nice. Yeah, cool. Yeah, nice and simple. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues with a super intuitive UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code. You can quickly pinpoint and resolve problems before they reach your customers. Scout's unlimited seats and applications allow your whole team to use Scout without the headache of additional costs. See why software engineers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial. No credit card needed. Learn more at scoutapm.com. That's scoutapm.com. Yeah, so you don't use a lot of these other tools for managing you know, your virtual environment and all those kinds of things. No. Which is kind of the way I like to roll right now too, because I feel like, I know it sounds strange, but like the idea of having it all in that directory kind of means it's sort of like controlled. It's not, I deal with audio and video files. So like, (laughs) like virtual environments are not large in my opinion. No. And so like having them in a centralized space makes it way more confusing to me because it's, it's usually fairly convoluted path to to find them so yeah i mean uh, i i don't know it's always seemed the way to go so 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 i'll make two comments about that one is okay i do get exposed to a lot of people with machines that are not that powerful so i do understand from perspective for someone who's in some place in the world where their laptop's not very new and they have very limited space and need to be very careful about that space usage oh yeah i do understand wanting to make it easy to just wipe that all out when necessary if they're running out of disk space that so i do sympathize yeah but i will say i for me, keeping them all centralized in a place and I have to use tools to use it feels very... I'm an editor guy, not an IDE guy, mm. right? Like, okay. I use I use Visual Studio Code. I don't use Visual Studio, right? And there's a reason. It's just the way I like to work. Using these other tools that manage my virtual environments for me like that feel like more of an IDE thing 
And I am more of a, I want to understand, I'm happy to use tools to simplify my life, but I don't want to have to use the tool in order to get something done. More portable. Right, right. So like, perfect example is the Python extension for VS Code, right? Like our integration with Flake 8, we're still running, giving you Flake 8. We're not giving you just some bespoke thing, right? We're, we're, we are never going to give you a formatter that's custom to us. We will always just use the formats that are in the community because they're good enough, right? Like, just use black. If you don't like black, you can use auto pepator, right? Whatever. I, it's up to you. But there's no need for us to reinvent the wheel. But the key point is, is I don't want us to become that thing where we, you have to come to us because we're using, you're using our formatter. If you switch to another formatter, suddenly you're in trouble and your whole team then has to start using VS Code because of that formatter. I'm not interested in vendor lock-in. Okay. And to me, that um, those tools almost feel like weird weird in a way vendor lock-in for that workflow for virtual environments yeah especially when they become subscriptions and the whole <laughs> deal with that yeah but like with virtual wrapper i just don't use it because i just don't feel the need to be tied to that tool now this is not the don't get take me wrong here that i i am not suggesting that people who like virtual wrapper are doing it wrong at all like if you like that flow that's great it's just for me personally right I don't want to have to rely on a tool to make, to know, to use my virtual environments, right? It's, I am happy to just put them right there. I can activate them manually if I have to. Some tool that does the thing manually for me automatically is great, but I'm also totally going to be able to work with it even if I don't have the tool. And this is just the way my brain works. Yeah. As far as like something like uh, a tool like pipenv, mm -hmm. where it is doing a little, a little more of the the management, like if you're going to uh, package this thing up later, of like mm -hmm. including the the lock file and and some of these other kinds of things. Are there other tools that you use in those circumstances? So my workflow is I always use the Python launcher because it's just simple for me. Yeah, I create the virtual environment locally in my directory, name it .venv, because that way the Python launcher will find it, and it's local and it's hidden. If I am doing an app, and thus I need to pin my dependencies, I will use pip tools. Okay. I obviously use pip for installations and stuff. If I am packaging a project, I use flit. So that's because I don't, I try to avoid writing C code as much as possible in my life. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I okay. I mean, this is actually one of the reasons that... So I wrote a PEP. Uh, it's PEP 665. It's under consideration now. And it's actually my attempt to standardize lock files. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it'll get accepted. It's a little controversial because it only supports wheel files. Mm. That's because you can't really re easily pin when you have source distributions because... It's because source distributions mean you're compiling to a wheel, which means your dependencies are dynamic based on what that executed code decides are going to be your dependencies. And so you can't really accurately lock them down. It's kind of a hope that it won't be different on another day, right? There's nothing stopping you, the tool that you run, your your build tool backend for your SDS to go like, well, it's Tuesday. So on Tuesday, you have to install date util. But on Wednesday, not so much, right? Like, there's really nothing stopping codes from just deciding if what day of the week it is is going to change what the requirements are. Mm -hmm. So, because of that, you can't it's you can't really have a good lock file. You can pin your some of your dependencies and just say, "Oh, and I'm going to install this source distribution and whatever else it requires." 
But you can't just flat out say like this file represents the entire worldview of what this project will install and you don't have to look anywhere else. It's fully self-contained in this file. And to me, that's what a lock file is. But the reason I helped create that file and that pep was because I want to make it so that all of these tools, if people want to have those workflows, they can have it, but just so that there's less of a, oh, well, do you use pipbem or do you use Poetry? And that determines how you interact with the project. Yeah, I personally want to get it to the point from a person who works on an editor, a perspective of, you can use the Poetry workflow, you can use the pipbem workflow, you can use whatever you want, but it's also going to lead to the same files being generated in the end. That'd be nice, yeah. And that way, as a tool person i can just support the file and you can do whatever the heck you want in the terminal and i don't care i can still support the output but as of right now i don't have that right the in right the the these lock files are bespoke per project so we really as a tool would have to support every single lock file and that's just not scalable mm. so it's better to get down to like a standard like something like markdown and then let people like you can display it however you'd like but it needs to be a, a, you know, a standard set of like yep. parameters that are only allowed in, inside of this, which seems like it, it's, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that big a service to, to standardize, but I don't know. Um, well, as I said, the, the trick of it all is source is source distributions and, and version control system repositories, right? Like get repos. Okay. So going beyond things that are pure Python per se and, it's not even necessarily that it's so much it's just the the what are you trying to represent here right like are you trying to replicate what a requirements file represents or are you trying to really get down to a lock file yeah right because those are not the same thing right okay so from my perspective the pep pep 665 i'm going for a lock file right like as i said i want the worldview of what is available to be installed to be fully self-contained and listed in that file there's nothing else Right, like you can't randomly go to PyPI and install this wheel file and suddenly have to install this new package named Foo Bar Spam or whatever makes sense in your head, based on our earlier conversation. Yeah, I want it to be only what's there. So, from a security perspective, and from a simpler installer perspective, right? Because the nice thing is, if this long file represents everything. From a security perspective, you don't have to worry about some random thing getting pulled down on your machine, right? So if some package gets compromised or whatever, it's not going to suddenly inject some thing that you don't want to have in your app. And that's because it's going to have, you know, the lock file is going beyond a requirements file of just like pinning a dependency number to actually having a hash of like, this is the actual file that was being used there in some ways, right? Right, and it's not optional, right? If you read the PIP, I outline everything you have to specify in PIP to get an equivalent result, which you can do. Okay. But what you have to do is, in PIP, what you, you have to do is you have to say you only want binaries, which are wheels. You, have to, you want no dependencies. You want to require hashes to make sure that nothing's been modified. And there's a lot of optional steps that you have to do to make requirements files do the right thing. And on top of that, requirements files don't necessarily have everything you'd want to make sure like, oh, hey, this lock file only works on this OS. Don't try to run it on mm. Windows. This is very much built for Mac. Yeah, okay. Which is totally fine, but it's not expressible in a requirements file. So that's kind of where this all came from. And on top of that, I'm constantly trying to help get packaging as I can to a place where we're 
we're, we're working on standards for the binary artifacts, the actual artifacts that get produced, and less about necessarily demanding what the workflow is, right? Yeah, okay. And because as you, as you point out, like, it's like, it's unfortunate that all these tools that are, have custom lock files that no one else can really work with. It's kind of very much a tool thing. And I, I'd rather have tools, like with Virtual Unwrapper, right? Like, it at least still creates, it still creates virtual environments, right? That's still a standard thing. You can still work with it. But if it created a custom environment, right, that 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 really becomes a fortune because then you really much become tied to that tool, right? You really have to use virtual wrapper. Right. No other tool can read that. And, and, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Or it can't navigate it. Okay, right. Exactly. Versus like, in versus if it's a virtual environment, Okay, at worst, you might have to understand where to go look for a virtual environment for your open workspace or directory yeah. in in your editor. But if you can figure out that search path, you can at least find it. But at worst, even if that didn't work, you can still manually specify the path to wherever you keep your virtual environments, and we can still use it because it's the standard virtual environment format. So there's a pi pyvim.cfg file that we can read, and it's all straightforward, and it's all good. Right. Even if the flow of where it gets stuck on disk isn't necessarily something we know about, we can still at least understand the output. Yeah. But with these lock files, we don't have that right now. And so that's why we're trying to move towards that direction. Now, we could have tried to do a requirements file, but requirements files have their own drawbacks um, in terms of the, the semantic information that they have in them, which is why my co authors are actually pet maintainers, right? Like, the, the pit maintainers themselves admit that requirements files don't quite do exactly what everyone would wish they could do. Yeah. So instead of trying to standardize requirements files, we tried to go a step further and go like, okay, let's do an actual lock file that's nice and secure and makes installers even easier, right? Like if your whole world is in this one file, you don't have to understand all of the nuances of dependency resolution, right? Like the PEP is actually written in such a way that it's a dependency graph that you can write an algorithm to solve on your own. I don't have to use some crazy set solver. Like, um, if you remember, like when PIP changed its re- its solvers, right, right, last year. Yeah, that that was to move to a proper set solver so that you can have a com- proper solution to this big dependency tree that doesn't have necessarily a good solution. PEP six sixty five actually requires the tool that generates the slot file to make a graph that is totally solvable easily and actually outline the algorithm in the PEP of what you have to do. It's not complicated. And so you can easily write an installer in a few hundred lines of Python using some libraries that we have created uh, in the community to have your own custom installer, right? You don't have to use PIP if you don't want to. And that's what all this is all about, right? It's just simplification, and just make it all around the artifacts and not around the specific tools, right? Tools are great, and tools are great if they help you get the workflow you want. But in terms of interoperability, flexibility of changing that workflow. Yeah, not getting locked in. Yeah, yeah, not getting locked in. You kind of have to lead to these standards that everyone understands, right? I mean, Poetry is a perfect example. Poetry has its own lock file, but it still has to support exporting to requirements.txt files for all of those places that just don't support Poetry, right? Like. Yeah, okay. Look at all the cloud vendors. They all support this kind of concept of serverless like functions, right? Whether it's Azure functions or AWS Lambda or GCP functions or whatever. All of them understand requirements.txt files, but 
it's only him, not all of them understand poetry lock files. Right. So poetry has to have this concept of exporting because there's no standard. There's just convention of these requirements.txt files. Mm. I'm trying to do what I can to get us to a standard so we can just go to all the cloud vendors and be like, hey, here's the lock file that's standard. Understand that lock file and you get, you'll support any of the tools anyone uses, whether it's poetry or pipm for any PDM, PyFlow, any of the other workflow tools that people want to use to manage their dependencies manage their environment, whatever. Whatever workflow works for you, just as long as the output is something that everyone can understand. Yeah. That lock file thing really is going to solve a lot of these kind of problems of, you know, the squatting thing that, you know, where people have a a name of a package internally and someone has made a version of it out in, you know, uh, PyPI or whatever, you know, it's kind of, it's very interesting, you know, like yeah. it's a whole other level. And I think people might initially think it's a lot more complexity, at least I did. Uh, but then when I started to, you know, talk to lots of different people about this over the last year, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm getting this more and more. And I'm I'm really starting to understand like, okay, well, th- you know, it's, it's just a much more specific, <laughs> you know, thing that you're, you're asking for here and, and having this sort of idea that, okay, this has not been, modified or you know had any kind of malicious stuff happening with it and it's like not not a huge change but you're right it's like a lot of parties that have to like agree on it and Mm -hmm. and get the momentum uh moving toward it i don't don't know how you feel like the momentum is going so far so i don't know so this pep was actually a bit controversial and I don't know if it's actually going to get accepted in the end. Mm. As you point out, like it, it, it specifically is designed to try to deal with a lot of these what are called supply chain attacks, right? Like the typo squatting or someone changing files from underneath you, right? Like it requires there be hashes for every file that you might download, right? Yeah. Which has some actually nice benefits. It also means like you don't have to care where the, your installer finds the file. If it matches the hash, it can come from anywhere. It can come from disk. It's it's the file then, yeah. It's the file, exactly. It can come from a local cache. It can come from PyPI. It can come from uh, an internal mirror that you might have at work. It doesn't matter. It can come from anywhere, right? So this suddenly opens things up such that you can actually start using PyPI because big companies or even small companies even, you might not think about it, but you have to be careful about what you trust that goes out anywhere because you never know what's been modified. So this is why a lot of companies start to have like internal mirrors. Like you can't touch PyPI. You have to get it from the internal mirror that we completely control because that way we can guarantee you're not going to run PIP without requiring hashes yeah. and accidentally not check for that stuff. Versus if you're like, oh, you have to use this file and this installer that that's going to check the hash, then you say, I don't care. You can get totally get from the public internet. It's, going to totally be what you we expect it to be yeah but it's one of these things that it's security is not something everyone necessarily worries about until until they get burned by it and i get it it's it's a hassle sometimes and the the hassle with this pep is if you don't have a wheel you're out of luck it does not support wheel it does not support source distributions for very specific reasons and while I'm totally a proponent of having more wheels on PyPI, I'm also a realist to understand that does that doesn't mean everyone's going to have it for everything they need. So with this PEP, you probably have to have a tool that will build the wheels for you, stick them in a cache or in the directory, and you just have to ship the wheels with your code if some project did not ever build an SDIST. 
Now, I would also hope that somehow this might motivate having people do more wheels or for really old projects, someone just having a cache somewhere of here are all the wheels for these Estes only projects that haven't been updated in like the last five years. It's a one-time cost. Just people can just use it. I don't know. But the deal is, is some people have workflows where asking them to build the wheels and ship them is seemingly too much. And so the pet might not happen simply because those users won't use it. And if not enough people will use the PEP, then there's no point in having the PEP because then it just becomes another standard that gets specified and never utilized. Yeah, And that's a concern we always have in the packaging side of things is we're constantly trying to standardize stuff because for the longest time, everything in packaging was very much based on convention, right? Everyone just assumed setup tools. Everyone just assumed PIP. Everyone just assumed requirements files. But those weren't standards. Those were just assumptions, right? Like everyone's suddenly realizing, oh my God, setup.py install is now deprecated by setup tools. It's actually been deprecated for a while. They just didn't know it until Paul Gansel wrote his blog post, um, I think last month, but specifically publicly stating setup.py install is a deprecated thing and may go away someday because setup tools doesn't want to be in the business of providing a UI. Well, everyone's going, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, well, setup.py was never a standard. It was just a thing most people assume because just a lot of people did it, but there's really nothing written in a pep anywhere saying setup.py is a thing. Right. So this is why we've slowly been trying to do stuff to get things written down. It's like, this is the thing you should assume. This is what you should expect. This is how we do stuff. And this is how we make sure it's not all based on whatever setup tool says, right? Because that's the other thing is if it all gets tied up in the setup tools, it means setup tools can never change because suddenly setup tools is going to break the world if they change something. But if it's in a standard, as long as setup tools follows the standard, they can do whatever they want. Same with any of these other tools that want to change workflows and provide new things. It's like, as long as they adhere to the standards, they can completely revolutionize how things get done in terms of a workflow. As long as the output's all the same, more power to you. Do whatever you want. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. In the recent past, I've featured several data visualization libraries on the show, but one has stuck with me for its flexibility and interactivity, and this course will help you get started with it. The course is titled Data Visualization Interfaces in Python with Dash. The course is based on an article by Dylan Castillo, and in the course, Darren Jones takes you through how to create a Dash application, how to use Dash core components and HTML components, how to customize the style of your Dash application, and use callbacks to build interactive applications, and then deploy your application on Heroku. Creating analytical web applications has been a task for seasoned developers that required a lot of knowledge of JavaScript and several different frameworks. With Dash, now you can make data visualization interfaces using pure Python. This course will take you from start to hosted project so you can share your work. The course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get additional resources plus code examples for the techniques shown. And all real Python courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. Are these like, uh, is this like a good example of growing pains? You know, like, Yes. With the idea of, of the language being adopted, you know, much wider and a lot more people kind of joining in on it. 
Yeah, it is. It totally is. It's one of these things where that it's, it's a maturity thing. It's like, Oh, look, my project suddenly became really important. Oh no. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the, it's the, (laughs) it's, it's a victim of our own success. Right. Like when set tools came around, it was just, just, it was fancy distutils. Until it got to the point where people didn't even know what distutils were and it's all setup tools. And then we couldn't touch distutils because we didn't know what we would break. Hence why distutils is now deprecated and setup tools is just subsuming it because no one calls distutils directly anymore. But we also can't risk breaking it. So we're just telling setup tools, hey, it's yours, do what you want with it. We're getting we're we're just we're letting it go. But yeah, it's one of these things where it's just habit and what the blog posts all say, and everyone just starts to blindly do it for because it works and I will tell you, the last thing people ever want to touch is their packaging code. Yeah. Right? Like, it works. Oh, and it worked on this project, so I'm just going to copy what I did there over to this other project. Oh, it still works? Awesome. <laughs> I don't have to change squat. I'm going to start coding my cool thing and not care about the packaging side. So even trying to get everyone around a thing that allow us to all interoperate and have good support in cloud scenarios and editors and all these tools and common nomenclature and these blog posts don't have to be tool specific anymore and just all these other wins of just like well if you use setup tools you have to do this but if you use this you have to do that like all this stuff we're trying to get it so that you can have a single set of instructions and just go like and yeah then just choose whatever tool you want to do it with it doesn't matter it's all going to lead to the same thing but it, it's it's tough, right? Because once again, especially when we're in packaging, yeah. it's the last thing on anyone's mind. It's the one thing you do before release. It's the thing you think about the least. It's the thing you want to break the least because you're at the you're tired and just want to push the thing and just oh my god, why are you breaking out? This is the last thing you want to have happen is to have your package not build to a wheel or whatever. And like ah, what the heck's going on? And it's the assumption that everybody else using you know this whole ecosystem. It has all these assumptions so that it should just work and it's like <laughs> oh yeah and it, it's funny too because everyone immediately goes like why can't we have what the rest community has with cargo and you have to go well the rest community a is way newer yeah they don't have 25 years of history behind them that they've had to learn from they got to learn from us not the other way around sure right like they got to see what we went through and have gone through and figure out their own thing. But it's way simpler. Rust has to worry about Rust. Python has to worry about Python and C and Rust and Fortran and Julia and R and any other language you can name that someone in the Python community wants to glue into a Python program with. Yeah. Right? Very few other communities have such an extensive amount of FFI to other languages uh, foreign function interfaces that they try to build into their Python code, into their language, right? Like, I don't really know of anyone who has the the vast amount of packages with so much C code and other languages, right? Rust, as I said, Rust, you name it, someone's built Python with it, right? There's some way to call this code from someone else in a Python, right? We're the glue code of the world at this point for a reason. But that makes packaging really hard, which is why we're always trying to get down to these standards because every tool has its own funky needs potentially to support this this esoteric thing that it has to build for. Yeah. But like Rust, Rust doesn't have to care. Rust is going to build in .so file, and it's up to the linker to care about how to plug it into that C code that you're working with. Same with the WebAssembly stuff. It's compiling WebAssembly. It's up the WebAssembly runtime to deal with it. 
Python, we are the runtime, we are the linker, we are the thing that pulls this all together. And so we got to solve all of it. And it's hard. It really is. And very few communities in the world have the scale of problem that we have. And so I think this is why a lot of people have a misunderstanding about why the heck is packaging so complicated. It's like, well, it isn't if you do the simple thing, but inevitably you or someone else in the world that you use didn't want to do the simple thing for whatever reason. I'm not saying it's a wrong thing. Hard does not mean wrong. Hard is just hard. Right. And it had its own special needs. And once again, based on 25 years of history and trying to make sure other things work and we carry the whole community forward, just don't leave it on the floor. Right. And those people are very vocal often too. Mm -hmm. And have, you know, their corner edge corner case has, you know, potentially a lot of volume to it, you know, not necessarily people, but potentially, you know, (laughs) other, other things, you know, so it bubbles up and becomes a a whole thing. (laughs) It's, it's tricky, right? Cause the other thing is, is when you talk about packaging, you're talking about people's workflows, right? And the last thing you want to tell someone is how to do their job. It's got to change. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like it's like telling someone you have to use this editor, right? We all know what the editor wars are like, like everyone's got an opinion. Like, I would love it if everyone used VS Code, but I fully well know I will never win that battle because everyone's got their opinion, right? Sure. The Emacs Vim, it's the old thing. It's like like telling a painter, you've got to use these paints and and these paintbrushes. Like, are you kidding me? No, that does not feel the right way in my hand. It will will cramp my style and my expressivity, right? It's funny. Developers are... We might work in a very rigid kind of structure of code and think, t- being very explicit about instructions we send to the computer, but we want that expressivity of our API design and the tools we use to write all this stuff and all the steps we use, and that level of flexibility very much plays into what people want to have afforded them to do the workflow they want, and that goes all the way down to packaging and just how they interoperate and just interact with things. So it just <laughs> is what it is. And it just makes it tough because yeah. I, I totally want this to be simple, but I want it to be simple the way I want it to work. And everyone's, unfortunately, the way they want it to work is unique. So it's hard to find that common denominator that either works for everyone or coming up with that opinion that the vast majority of people are happy with. And you just have to go to the other people and like, sorry, your your view is turning out to be esoteric and we need to just ask you to tweak it or you're going to have to put in some effort to make your way work. Right. Meet us part way. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why packaging is just out hard. <laughs> yeah, totally. It just is. Yeah. So I have these weekly questions and the first one is, what are you excited about in the world of Python? It could be an event, uh, a book, package, what have you. What, what are you excited about right now? Uh, podcast gaze is coming up, so that's going to be fun. Yeah, that's probably it. I'm hoping Pep six sixty five gets accepted, but that's that's nervousness more than excitement. Yeah, that's the key ones for me right now. Okay, it's really podcast gaze. After that, all my excitement is you can do one of those virtual watch shows. Or are you gonna? You well, podcast gaze is not in person. It's virtual only this year. Right. So I'm not doing one of the. Sh- I actually am not doing any of the watch parties. Okay. Uh, partially because they're limited seating and it feels uh, like I'd rather let someone who hasn't gotten to a 10 podcast stage get that seat than for me to take that seat away from someone. So due to the limited size, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go. 
but I'll be there virtually and I'll participate however I can virtually. But yeah, I think that's probably it. Everything else is kind of irons I have in the fire, as it were, and things that haven't really come to a point where I can say like, oh yeah, I'm excited about this thing that's potentially coming up, but isn't far enough long for me to be able to concretely say, yeah, I'm excited, so you should go check it out kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think Cascade probably is the next big thing I'm looking forward to. And um, what do you want to learn next? And again, it doesn't have to be Python specific. <laughs> oh, that's the other thing I'm excited about. Actually, before I forget, I should mention that thanks to the hard work of Ethan Smith and Christian Himes, the uh, main branch of CPython can compile to WebAssembly without modification. Whoa, cool. Yeah. So that's the first. Um, that was a very nice kind of thing that happened. I was looking into it and I looked into get the cross build for WebAssembly because obviously you're not running a WebAssembly CPU. So you got to make it work otherwise. Okay. So I was looking into it and that's uh, when I found out our cross build setup was kind of mess, kind of a messy situation during the core sprints in October. And Christian, I was talking with, was then took a look and like, yeah, this is kind of need some work. And so he got really motivated and started to really work on it. And he started talking about, well, could we do cross builds this way or that way? And I would have to go like, yeah, well, that wouldn't work for WebAssembly because blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he just used WebAssembly as the example that he used for cross compiling. And he just got really into it. And then Ethan Smith saw that we were, that Christian was doing all this work. I, I can't take credit. They did all the hard coding work. I, I, I touched some stuff, but they took it and just ran. And Ethan came in and started help too. And to the point that, yeah, um, I have a PR I'm hopefully going to review later today for Christian. That's going to add a WASM directory in the tools directory in CPython's repo to give instructions on how to build for WebAssembly right out of the, out of the repo. So hopefully that'll make it easier for people to get a WebAssembly build for the browser up and going. Now it's not, it's down to five megs. So it's not necessarily small if you want to embed in every browser. Okay. Uh, or on every website, as it were, but it should at least be small enough that if you wanted to set up a nice website that pulls up like a Python Repl or something, it, much like Pyodide provides, it should be doable. And hope and uh, with the hope that those will also make it easier for like projects like Pyodide to do their thing because now they don't have to worry about all right, what's it going to take now to get the new version of Python up and running? Well, nothing. It's just working. Yeah, I wonder what uh, Russell the yeah Beware and stuff would have. Probably want to come check out it out too. Yeah. Cool. So that's the hope is we're going to keep plugging away at this. We want to get working on Wazzy so you can run this on the desktop because then that's how we get build bots and start getting like you can actually do CI against WebAssembly builds and that kind of thing. And there's a whole list of like possibilities. But the first step was to get the main branch building cleanly in WebAssembly for the browser. And it does. So, wow. Cool. Yeah. And watch that space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so then I don't know if that <laughs> answers the question on what you want to learn next, though. Yeah, uh, so sort of, it ties into it. So uh, I bought Programming Rust 2nd Edition. Okay. that, that I blame Kushal Das for that one. For those of you who know Kushal. But the first edition was great, so I figured I'd read it. So every year for my Christmas holiday, assuming I have time, uh, I don't know this year because if you follow me on Twitter uh, and Christopher and I were talking this offline, uh, <laughs> I just bought myself an Xbox Series X and a Switch all within 10 minutes of each other on total fluke. So I might be gaming way more than I was planning to. 
but my hope was to actually uh, learn what it takes to use Rust to compile into WebAssembly and hook that up because okay, I don't know if you know the card game Cribbage. I don't. Well, I, I saw you asking those questions too, though. About like, yeah, it's uh, a very old card game. It's typically for two players. It can be three. Uh, it's very easy to take the two player game and make it work for four players. Um, anyway, I, I, I play with my in laws. Yeah, and the scoring. It's not complicated, but it's easy to miss points for yourself because you have to like take your five cards that you're considering and figure out all the different combinations that add up to 15 and all this other stuff. Hmm. And it's just very easy to just miss stuff. So as a Christmas project, I was, for the winter holidays, I was thinking I would write a Rust library that can calculate your cribbage hand score compile it to WebAssembly, and then use something like Tailwind CSS or something to make a nice website that's easy to punch in your cards and then just tell you what your cribbage score is. Isn't that the game that you would have like a little like peg Pegboard? Yep. Yeah, okay. Right. That's it. Uh, right. One of the reasons my in-laws love it is my wife and I, when we used to live out in Ontario, we actually went to the Stratford Shakespeare Festival well, we went every year. We lived out there. But one year we went there and went to a little craft fair outside and we found this really nice handmade wooden cribbage board. And yeah. we bought it for my in-laws and they love it. And so we <laughs> occasionally play with them and get the board out. That's cool. Nice. But yeah, so that's it. So Program Rust 2nd Edition, Rust to WebAssembly, Tailwind CSS. All right. And to see if I can manage to make a non-ugly UX experience for picking playing cards to calculate your cribbage hand score. All right. That's the next thing I'm going to learn. Well, maybe in between some some rounds of game playing. <laughs> yeah. I suspect so. Otherwise, why the hell did I drop that money on those two consoles? <laughs> All right. Well, Brett, thanks so much for coming on the show again. It's been really awesome talking to you again. Anytime. I'm always happy to come on, Christopher. All right. We'll have to come back and talk about the premature opposition post. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. As a bit of follow-up on this week's episode, unfortunately, PEP665 was rejected this week. I'll continue to watch this space and report on developments in the Python packaging ecosystem. And don't forget, learn why Scout APM is the developer's best friend by visiting scoutapm.com. I really want to thank Brett Cannon for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.